This is the Church Security Made Simple podcast, giving leaders practical solutions to help make your community safer. I'm your host, Simon Osimo, the founder of Kingswood Security and an author on church safety, and I'm on a mission to keep his churches safe. Now, it's been over 10 years since the Lord called me into security ministry, and as a national church safety practitioner, I'll share my expertise, all be joined by one of my co-hosts, giving you simple solutions to keep your church safe. So if you're ready to make your church security simple, join me as we dive into this week's episode and we learn how to plan, prepare, and protect. So in the last episode, Dr. James Densley started to educate us on the four things that mass shooters generally have in common. Now, Dr. James Densley and Dr. Gillian Peterson are co-founders of the Violence Project, and they've researched every mass shooting in the US from 1966 to the current day in what is believed to be one of the most comprehensive mass shooting databases in America. And if you haven't listened to the first part of this conversation with James, I'd strongly encourage you to go back and take a listen and follow this series in order. Now, in the first part, James shared that mass shooters have experienced severe childhood trauma. And in today's episode, he's going to share that mass shooters all have a recognized breaking point and demonstrate signs of crisis either before their deadly attack or during their attack. But before we dive into this episode, I want to tell you about the sponsor of this series, Bullers Insurance. Now, Bullis Insurance are based here in Minnesota, but they serve churches, nonprofits, and companies across the country, teaching them how to manage and mitigate risk. I've known Mark Bullis for owner for coming up to a decade, and they are my personal insurers of my business. So if you're looking to make sure you have the right coverage or want to look at insurance in a new way, I want to encourage you to reach out to Mark and the team at Bullis Insurance as I know they'd be more than happy to answer any questions and help. And you'll find their details below in the show notes. So if you are ready, without further ado, let's dive into part two of my conversation with Dr. James Densley from The Violence Project. Well, James, we're going to cover the second thing that you identified during your research with your co-founder about mass shooters, the four things that they have in common. And last week, we touched on they experienced childhood trauma. Today, we're going to talk about their lives had reached an identifiable crisis. So what does this mean, James? Yeah, so um, this research where we studied the life histories of mass shooters, we looked at this both in a statistical sense, looking at a database that we built of mass shooters, but we also interviewed incarcerated mass shooters and their family members, their friends and others. What was a consistent theme is that they had reached identifiable crisis points. A crisis is a marked change in baseline behavior. So what we mean by that is if you're always angry, and then you're angry again, that's not a change in behavior. But if you're always angry and then the next day you're really happy, that is a change in baseline behavior. And it might be indicative that something's going on in something in someone's life. So what we saw is there was this marked change in people's behavior. Increased agitation was common, a kind of losing touch with reality, withdrawing from everyday life. These were some of the signs that people were changing, I think is the important notice here. It was an opportunity for intervention if you know the signs. But unfortunately, in these cases, they often fell through the cracks and it festered in the end, resulted in violence. 
What I like about the identifiable crisis is one of the challenges, I say I shouldn't like it, but one of the challenges that churches face across the country is that they are these open door environments where everyone is welcome and people go to church because they know that they're broken in some way. So it can be quite difficult to identify the change because you don't always know what the baseline behaviour is. But we just know it is an environment where people are going with some very strong human brokenness on their shoulders, you know, heavy on their shoulders and on their on their minds. I mean, what was your research about the type of behaviours that were being seen in these identifiable crises? It was, as I mentioned, sort of increasing agi- agitation, a kind of losing touch with reality was another thing, a withdrawal from daily tasks and everyday life. There was also uh, depression, uh, which was which was a big component of this. And I think what's important about about this is if you think about the church environment, you've got the church community is really the key to the church. You know, you've got the routine of the church, which is you know every Sunday you're going to be there and people are going to be observing and watching. And it really speaks this idea of being attuned to what's going on in people's lives and being confident enough and willing enough to kind of reach out and have those types of conversations to say, you know, hey, you're not looking great right now. Is everything okay? Because here was the other thing. This identifiable crisis manifested its way in kind of a couple of ways. One, it's like the straw that breaks the camel's back. So sometimes it's being fired from work, for instance, is the thing that is the sort of final uh, straw. It might be a relationship failing or a breakdown of relationship, whatever that is. What ends up happening though is people are asking themselves, like, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? But over time, it changes to what is wrong with them? And it's that shift in that mindset which starts to uh, project outward and create the opportunity for violence. Because what we see with these mass shootings is they're not just homicides, they're suicides. So people get to a point in their life where they no longer care if they live or die. And if they no longer care if they live or die, this is a, it's a shift in when we think about deterrence for this. Instead, we have to be really thinking about what are the tools in our tool belt to prevent suicide may also prevent homicide. An interesting thing about what you said there, James, you know, I sort of started to sort of go down this uh, route is that, um, I'm sounding American there now, route, <laughs> change that to route, is that a church has the challenge, but it's an open door everyone is welcome, but it also has the added advantage that it has programs to identify the things that you're talking about. You know, they have crisis intervention programs, you know, divorce care, prisoner rehabilitation, you know, youth programs. There's so many things where if people are trained to observe, to listen and to watch, they're most probably seeing a lot of these identifiable crises or the change in human behavior, which is often what gives, um, sort of gives people away. The beautiful thing about this as well is we don't just reach out and show care and compassion and grace to people because they might be a mass shooter. We reach out and show care because that's the right thing to do. And so what is quite cool about this is what is a protective factor, if you will, for preventing mass violence is also a protective factor just to have a, a better, more f- well-functioning, uh, you know, caring life. And um, this is the power, I think, of where institutions like the church can really add value here, which is church practitioners are experts at understanding how people deal with grief and trauma and, and, and these issues. And also can really be 
that person that that notices when something's not right and 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 there's a need to check in you got to use those skills to just reach out and be caring this is the one thing that was remarkable from the research in the case of averted shooters so we interviewed people who had literally brought a, a gun in their backpack to school with the intent of perpetrating a shooting but didn't go on ahead with it when we asked them what was the thing that stopped you nine times out of ten it was a simple act of kindness somebody reached out touched them on the shoulder and said hey how's it going you know everything's gonna be okay and it was that moment where they realized life was actually worth living because they knew that if they perpetrated this shooting they'd either spend the rest of their life in prison or their intent was to die in the act either be shot by police or take their own lives you need that connection, that human connection to get people through that moment. And that was really one of the key findings from the whole research project. And I think that's most probably why you use some of my work, James, in the book, because you know, I teach about conversational interviewing. A lot of that is being that sort of the welcome greeting and you know, reaching out your hand to someone saying, welcome to Westwood Community Church. Now, what brings you to the church today? Having this interaction with them to sort of look in the whites that arise and, and just listen and, and be present in the moment. I think when I look at churches, ushers, greeters, and those in frontline roles have everything that you've said there to really try and at least see that crisis um, and, and interject. And interestingly, one thing you said there, James, the communication of those crises, had they done that during their life or those sort of, um, had ever communicated that, hey, my life is in crisis or again, was it a later reflection from them? What is often the case, and it's easy, I think, to some degree to kind of what they would say Monday morning quarterback this, right, is, is hindsight, there's a hindsight bias with some of this stuff, which is it's easy to look back and say, well, look, these were all the warning signs and we didn't put them together. But what is common is there is leakage, is sort of the threat assessment terminology about this, which is to say there are examples where people have posted things on social media or they've said something to a friend or to a teacher or to a family member. But what's happening is people aren't putting two and two together. So there might be an arrest that law enforcement has arrested somebody for, for something. At the same time, somebody might have been fired from work. At the same time, they might be going through a messy divorce. And at the same time, they might also be you know, in, in a fight with a friend. If you look at all those things independently in silos, you never put them all together. You never realize, oh, wow, there's a lot going on here. Instead, we see these things in isolation. And by seeing them in isolation, perhaps you don't realize the full extent of the picture. One of our interviewees said, it's about putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And so again, a place like a church is kind of important for this because it is the, it's the water cooler, it's the meeting ground, it's the place where you might be checking in with somebody every week on a Sunday. You might know these people for years. That gives you great opportunity to notice when something is not right. And then to be able to say, well, maybe we can just show a little bit of, uh, you know, care and support and, and get them through that moment. One of the other things that was going through my mind, James, was the Charleston church mass murderer. If those people listen to the first episode, they'll see that I've removed his name. So I'm, I'm trying there, James. I'm That's learning. it. No notoriety. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so what he said was, and I believe this was during one of his FBI interviews, I often talk about this during my training. He rubbed salt in the wounds, not because he took nine human lives, but he almost laid blame on the faith community saying, you could have stopped this. If only someone had asked me why I was there, more than likely I would have sort of, you know, come out and sort of said, um, or it might've even sort of prevented me from carrying out this attack. So I, I feel that's very harsh of him to lay that blame on the faith community. But 
in reflection, there's an element of it which is which is true that you know some of these people reflect afterwards and say, well, if someone had intervened, I wouldn't have carried out that crime. And it doesn't even need to be a mass shooting; it could be something small. Saying that there's key points where people could interject in that person's life and they don't do it. That mass murderer's comments. Did you find that consistent across other mass murderers that people could have they, they were looking for a cry for help and no one um, came to their rescue? I love that you just used the the phrase cry for help because we, we actually have a, a new research paper about this exact fact. We looked at the leakage, the telegraphing of these mass shooters, and we basically found a really strong correlation between leakage and some mental health variables. So what we see is that there's an overlap here with this being a cry for help not necessarily always a search for notoriety or fame, right? So, and it changes the way you treat this leakage as well, right? So, so sometimes you hear people saying, well, if someone threatens violence, we should punish them. Well, that's all very well and good, but you want to encourage people to threaten violence because that's your opportunity for intervention. You don't want to, them to be silent. If they're silent, then all, these things happen out of the blue. The leakage is the opportunity to reach out and intervene. If you treat the leakage as a cry for help, your intervention looks really different because then you don't punish people. Instead, you get them connected to the help that they need. We see this as, as vital, I think, for, for reframing uh, violence prevention. Think about leakage as an opportunity for intervention because it is a cry for help. And I think in the church where we're talking about today, you know, there are numerous opportunities to find those identifiable crisis flashpoints. You know, I mentioned a few about sort of divorce care, prisoner rehabilitation programs, addiction clinic, uh, mental illness. You know, there's various different programs within the church where people's lives could be in crisis. I know both uh, you and I and your partner, Gillian, say, you know, a crisis is a moment in time, but there, there's always, you know, success leads clues and also adverse things in our life are also leaving, leading clues for us. So it's some fascinating research, James. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. And like you say, it is a moment in time. And, and really, for all of us listening, it's a moment for intervention. And if we can take that on board, then we could save lives, not just preventing a mass shooting, but just connecting people who are feeling, you know, alienated from the world right now. They need a little bit of help. So, James, we've gone through the first one, experienced childhood trauma. The second one is reached an identifiable crisis. And next week, studied the actions of other mass shooters. So that is also going to be fascinating. So, again, Dr. James Gensley, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks, Simon. So we heard in this episode about suicidality and the crisis that these mass shooters have gone through either before or at the time of carrying out this criminal act. And I really like what James said at the end there. But this is a moment for intervention, and if we take this on board, we can save lives. Now, if you want to learn more about the Violence Project's research, go to the show notes below where you'll find a link that will take you straight to their website. And then when we come back in the next episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Densley about how mass shooters have studied other mass shooters. But before you leave me, if you are looking for dynamic online trainings to grow your knowledge on how to stay safe and secure, please head over to the Worship Security Academy by clicking the link below to see all our online church security offerings. Now that is it for now. Thank you for listening and I shall see you in that next episode. Thank you for listening to the Church Security Made Simple podcast. 
if you are looking for more information and training on how to keep you and your church safe, or if you're interested in working with me on my one-to-one mentoring program, please head over to courses.kingswoodsc.com. And if you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate and review wherever you are listening. Now, I will be back with you on the next episode. But until then, stay safe, have a blessed week. And remember, always plan, prepare and protect. Thank you.